All comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. and welcome back to season two episode eight of professionally embarrassing we're sorry there's been a little bit of a delay as per usual we've been working really hard and have struggled to try and get our schedules to match up but we've managed to sit down and record and we've got two really juicy cases coming up for you mine is to do with the termination of the appointment of a children's guardian in care proceedings and maddie's is to do with a surrogacy case that's turned up on bailey and we've had some requests as well for more finance and more surrogacy cases so we aim to please i'm going to be kicking us off this week with what did you see on bailey and the case i'm dealing with is a totally bizarre one out of one of my local courts and it features a fair few members of my chambers I should say that the various professionals in this case are named in the judgment but I don't propose to name them in this episode myself I'm just going to refer to them by their various titles and roles in the proceedings in particular the children's guardian who doesn't come out particularly well in this judgment I'm just going to refer to as the children's guardian So this is a judgment by Her Honour Judge Carter, and it's called N, a child, termination of appointment of children's guardian. This case related to care proceedings, and the child in this case is called N. Ahead of a hearing towards the end of last year in November 2021, the local authority filed and served an assessment plan of the father in the proceedings. So that is an assessment that the local authority proposed would take place of the father. So they proposed that he undergo a social work risk assessment completed by a social worker, looking at his understanding of professional concerns in relation to harmful behaviour, including domestic abuse and sexual harm. The allocated social worker in this case was a newly qualified social worker, and so it was felt that a more senior social worker, who is called ND in the judgment, should complete that assessment of the father, albeit the allocated social worker would co-work it with her because she had existing knowledge of the case. And the local authority said this will take them about 12 weeks. The father, after the filing of the assessment plan, then makes an application for an independent social worker, so someone outside the local authority, someone independent of the court proceedings, to complete a full parenting assessment of him. What the father was worried about is that if he waited for the outcome of this risk assessment that was being posed, it would then be 12 weeks before any parenting assessment of him could start delaying proceedings. Maddie and I have mentioned before, for those who don't practice in public law, that care proceedings are supposed to conclude within 26 weeks. So time is always of the essence and expert assessments need to be completed within that timetable. The day before the listed hearing on the 30th of November last year, the father's solicitor's assistant sent an email to the local authority 
That email read, in advance of the advocates meeting this afternoon and in response to the assessment plan of the local authority, I would be grateful if you could confirm how many sexual risk assessments ND, so the proposed social worker, has prepared and what relevant experience she has in relation to this kind of assessment. Please can you also confirm what tools she proposes to use for the assessment? I'll pause there to say, this is a perfectly proper inquiry to make in my view, particularly given that the assessment plan didn't actually set out any of this detail, didn't set out anything about ND's experience or qualifications. The local authority replied to that inquiry, they set out the information that was requested. So clearly they didn't think that it was an improper inquiry either. In the event, the father's application for the independent social work assessment was adjourned at the hearing on the 30th of November, that the court didn't feel that it was necessary to deal with it on that occasion. But here's where it gets weird. On the 1st of December, the Children's Guardian, so the Children's Guardian, for those who don't know, we've mentioned it before, is effectively the child's voice in the proceedings. They are usually qualified social workers who give recommendations, independent recommendations to the court about what they think should happen in terms of the child arrangements moving forward. So the Children's Guardian emailed the head of the family law department at Father's Solicitor's Firm. Importantly, the head of the family law department wasn't actually the solicitor with conduct of this case. So he was father's solicitor's manager, effectively. The judge notes that the guardian knew the head of the family department well. And the judge notes, and I can also confirm from my experience, that this is a firm who acts quite regularly for children via their children's guardians. The Guardian sent a lengthy email of what's described as nearly two pages of close type to the head of the family law department at father's solicitor's firm. He expressed his surprise at the father's application for an independent social worker assessment, and then says he was, quote, further concerned that following the making of such application, father's solicitor wrote to the local authority seeking to ascertain the professional competency of the local authority social worker, what skills and qualifications they had, what tools they would be using to assess father, and whether they had the necessary acumen and, ex and experience to undertake a task which they considered to be sufficiently complex that only an independent social worker would have the necessary skills required to complete the report. He then goes on to say, therefore I was very surprised that father's solicitor should seek to undermine the competence of the social worker and argue that only someone with a significant level of experience in assessing sex offenders could undertake such a task. I'll pause again. I don't know how he's managed to draw all of that from that relatively innocuous email sent by father's solicitor's assistant. There was nothing in that email, in my view, to suggest that father's solicitor was seeking to undermine the competence of a social worker. The piece of work that was being proposed was a specialist risk assessment, and it is not inappropriate at all to query whether a social worker has the skill set and experience to complete a specialist piece of work, especially within a context of a newly qualified social worker saying, actually, this falls outside my expertise, and so I need to co-work this with someone more senior. The Guardian then goes on to raise very personal concerns about the father's solicitor, and he writes, quote, I understand they sit on the children's panel and are deemed qualified to advocate on behalf of children. Like undertaking a parenting assessment as the bread and butter of social work, advocating in the courts 
presenting coherent arguments on behalf of those they represent, and cross-examining witnesses should be the staple diet of any practicing solicitor. Further, any practicing family law solicitor who is a member of the children's panel should have that additional level of skill commensurate with the qualifications of the role. I was therefore rather concerned that having made a part 25 application to the court for an independent social work assessment and further questioning the competence of the social worker undertaking an assessment of the father, the solicitor instructed counsel to undertake this task on their behalf. It again concerns me that having questioned the competence of the social worker to undertake their role, the solicitor appears to have abdicated their own role in this matter and asked someone else to present an argument in the court for them. Again, this is so bizarre. Solicitors instruct counsel for all sorts of reasons, whether that's because they have something else in their diary and they're not available, because counsel offers some sort of specific expertise, because they prefer not to do their own advocacy, whatever reason it might be, but it's certainly not fair to draw inferences from a decision to instruct counsel that the solicitor is trying to abdicate their responsibility or their role. Then it gets worse. The Guardian writes, quote, this action by the solicitor reminds me somewhat of the old proverb, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. I don't know the solicitor personally and cannot offer comment on their character. All I can do is observe their practice and comment on this if required. Given their qualifications and experience, I would have expected that presenting an argument to support their case would have been nothing more than a run-of-the-mill task for them. However, given their reluctance to undertake this task and willingness to place that task into the hands of others and their recent criticisms about the practice and expertise of the allocated social worker, I can't help but think that in demonstrating an inability to undertake fundamental tasks relating to their own practice, they are in no position to offer comment on the competence or ability of other professionals to do theirs. It is just utterly bizarre. It's one very innocuous email sent on behalf of the father, which is a very routine inquiry that seems to have just set this guardian off on one. He just, he's just gone completely on one. In further correspondence between the head of the family department and the children's guardian, the children's guardian says that the competence of this particular solicitor is, in his opinion, questionable, and that he will continue to raise concerns of any advocate if they unfairly criticise the practice of others, including local authority social workers, without good cause or justification. So take a moment to take all of that in. <laughs> And it will come as absolutely no surprise to you that a few weeks later, the father lodges an application seeking an order terminating the appointment of the children's guardian. Now, in the judgment, the judge sets out the relevant law and procedure which governs this sort of application. And I won't set that out in full as listeners can read that themselves. But it's a helpful case to have in your pocket if you end up making or responding to an application like this. What you can broadly pull from the authorities that are set out in the judgment is that while the court does have the discretion to terminate the appointment of a children's guardian, it is a discretion to be exercised sparingly. The court reminds us that guardians are ultimately just professional witnesses. They are subject to the court's scrutiny. They will eventually be cross-examined if people challenge their evidence at a final hearing, and they are not the ultimate decision makers. That is the court. However, the court may terminate an appointment where the guardian has acted manifestly contrary to the child's best interests, or, but only in very rare circumstances, 
where the guardian has engaged in conduct that the court would ordinarily be invited simply to take into account when deciding whether to accept or reject the guardian's evidence or recommendations. So one way the court could have dealt with this is that at a final hearing, all of this could have been put to the guardian in cross-examination and it would have been one matter to take into account by the court when assessing the quality of the guardian's recommendations. But the father effectively submitted to the court that the guardian had lost his objectivity and independence and that he seemed to be pursuing some sort of defense of his own profession, social workers, rather than the child's best interests, and that the public can't have confidence in a guardian who made improper comments about another professional, which were completely without foundation. Importantly, while Father's Counsel accepted that people make mistakes, and Maddie and I will be the first to admit that we've probably sent snippy, ill-considered emails that we regret sending and wish that we could take back. The issue was that in dealing with this application, there was nothing in the evidence before the court to suggest that the Guardian had taken a pause, reflected, and gone, you know what, this was a bad move on my part. I regret having done it, and I understand why it causes concerns. Instead, he seemed to stand by his criticisms. I should say that the Guardian had, with the benefit of legal advice, filed a statement in these proceedings. But at its highest, what he said was that his criticism of Father's solicitor may have been too harsh. But ultimately, he stood by his criticisms. The local authority basically sat on the fence and said it's a matter for the court, but the judge wouldn't have that and said, look, given the importance of the matter, you should express a view. And ultimately, the local authority did not support the termination of the guardian's appointment. So what did the court do? The court found that there was absolutely nothing in the email from Father Solicitor's assistant to justify the guardian's criticism. Obviously, we've gone through why that's the case. The email did not, in the court's view, undermine the competence of the social worker. It was a completely normal query. And the court disagreed with the guardian that the solicitor was unfairly criticising the practice of social workers without good cause or justification. The judge makes very clear that Father Solicitor did absolutely nothing wrong, and the criticisms by the guardian were entirely without any basis. The judge also, I mean, it doesn't, it shouldn't need to be written down, also sets out an explanation of the many reasons why solicitors instruct counsel, which may be, quote, as simple as availability or finances or as complex as a view that embarrassed his greater oratory and persuasive skills. It's entirely a matter for the solicitor instructed by a client, sometimes in conjunction with that client, as to whether a barrister is instructed or not. It is inappropriate for that to be the subject of comment, still less straightforward and personal criticism. Close quote. The judge was also troubled by the fact that the Guardian was trying to privately discuss this case with a solicitor who was a partner at the father's firm. Now, practitioners will know very well that in proceedings, all parties should be copied into correspondence of this nature so that there's transparency and there aren't any machinations going on behind the scenes. In any event, the child represented by their Guardian has a solicitor so if the guardian had any concerns to raise, the proper way to have gone about it was for the child solicitor to email the father solicitor, copying in the other parties, relaying the children's guardian's views. The judge acknowledged that there have been numerous occasions in this case where the guardian had agreed with the local authority or agreed with the parents, and they had taken an independent view in lots of other instances. And the judge also noted that this is a, a guardian who's experienced and whose recommendations are regularly accepted by the court. However, in this particular case, the judge concluded 
that the Guardian's actions fell short of the fairness required of him and created unfairness for the father and have also been contrary to the child ends interests. So she terminates his appointment. And the reasons for the judge doing so, in sum, are that the Guardian was not only just totally wrong in what he was saying about father's solicitor, he just could not accept that he was wrong. He maintained his views, and obviously that would then impact on how others in the proceedings would perceive him and his opinions and recommendations. The judge indicates that a very different view probably would have been taken if the Guardian at any stage had been able to own up and be reflective and accept that he shouldn't have acted that way. Then there's the issue of the criticisms having been made in private emails. Again, the Guardian, bizarrely, because this is an experienced Guardian, did not accept that he was in error by doing so, by sending that correspondence in a private email. The judge says that that creates an inevitable belief for the parents that this is a Guardian who doesn't think that normal rules apply to him. The Guardian also, in order to fulfill his function, has to be able to build a relationship with the parents, and the parents need to have confidence in him that he will act fairly to represent their child's interests. And the judge could not see in the circumstances how the parents could believe that. The judge concluded that the issue would permeate every decision made going forward, which could only be contrary to ends welfare. And every decision made by the children's guardian would be questioned by the parents and maybe also by the local authority if it didn't accord with their view. At any final hearing, if any party disagreed with the guardian, a lot of time would be taken up cross-examining him on this particular issue. The father would also believe that a very important person in these proceedings to whom the court would pay a lot of attention, the children's guardian, thinks his solicitor is not competent. And that would then create confusion for him and concerns about what's going on and who's right and what's happened. And the father would also be worried that the guardian would now not be fair to him because of his representation. So as a result of all of that, the judge concludes that there's a real likelihood that the actions of the guardian would lead to unfairness in the proceedings as a whole. So totally bonkers case. And I was slightly, my jaw was dropping as I was reading the correspondence because it just seemed like this guardian was digging more and more and more of a hole for himself and then was given every opportunity, a rope by the court to yank himself out and to reflect and say, well, maybe I shouldn't have sent that. And he just would not take that opportunity up. So it's a very unfortunate position and it's not a reflection of the guardian as a professional across their whole career or the rest of their work or their ability to represent children's interests. But it just seems that something seems to have completely spiralled out of control in this particular case. And this very much does sound like the right decision. Any thoughts, Maddie? Yeah, I think it's an interesting case. I mean, obviously on a kind of superficial level, it's just so funny that um, Solicitor got criticised for instructing counsel. I mean, we're not good, but we're not that bad. (laughs) Made me laugh a lot when I was reading it. I think on on a kind of more professional, importance level it is an important case because I am the queen of writing permission slips for people people make mistakes all the time and they should have room to reflect on them and learn from them and move forward and actually ironically enough that's what we say to our clients all the time when things go wrong or they say something that was ill-advised or they maybe make ill-advised comment or they give poor evidence or something like that we sort of say well it's fine you just need to learn from it you need to demonstrate you've grown from it and that you recognize it was wrong you have to accept the findings and move forward and so on that's the advice we give all the time it's ironic that a professional was not able to do that and I think that's what's slightly concerning about this case I think there comes a point as you read it about two-thirds in where the court says you know after all of that 
we asked the Guardian whether they had a view about whether they would have done anything differently. And they still said no. And I think that was the point at which it was almost written on the wall that it was going to happen. But I'm really surprised because I think if, like you say, if someone gives you an opportunity to say, look, okay, you made a mistake. Everyone makes mistakes. We've all been there. Given your time again, would you do anything differently? The answer to that question should almost always be yes. So it's quite surprising that that happened. I think maybe The Guardian was just doubling down because they felt that they were right to have made that comment or they felt that they had been misunderstood or they felt a particular way about it. I don't know. But I think it really does show that you really do need to reflect on mistakes made. Everyone makes mistakes. I don't think it's a bad guardian. I'm sure they're very good at their job. These things happen. And I think there was actually a case very similar to this about termination of the appointment of counsel. So it, ha- it happens to all professionals. I'm sure it does. Social workers definitely and other professionals like that. So, you know, it's not the first time we've heard of it, but it really is a, a lesson in taking our own advice that when you make a mistake, you own up to it, you reflect on it, you make sure that you learn from it. And obviously that obviously wasn't the case here. So yeah, it's a pretty interesting case. And I think it's a good reminder. Don't send emails without reading them back. Don't send emails without asking someone else to read them if you're worried about them. Don't send emails late at night. Don't send emails after a frustrating day. Just don't send emails unless they're actually saying something that needs to be said because a lot of email traffic generated, especially in care cases where the stakes are so high and people are talking amongst themselves so much and there's so much attempted collaboration, you do forget yourself. You are at work, it's professional, you can't speak to people in the way that you want to in your head. That's just not the reality of professionalism. So it's a good one to remind yourself of the boundaries of of that kind of work, I think. It also seems to have struck this really deep chord for this guardian. And and it's perfectly fair to say that social workers are often the subject of unjustified criticism in care proceedings where the nature, as much as we want to say it's collaborative and we're all working together, the nature of it is that parents are often seeing this as proceedings which are trying to take away their child. And they will be looking at every possible argument that they can run to try and undermine the evidence of professionals or to challenge the evidence against them. So I fully understand that he, he may well encounter regularly examples of parents questioning the competency of professional witnesses because we see it day in, day out, parents saying that children's guardians are incompetent or social workers are incompetent. But that just was not this case. It, it wasn't anything remotely like what was happening in this case. It wasn't a comment made by a parent. It was a comment made by a solicitor, which was, as I've said many times, completely innocuous. But I, I, I don't know if it's maybe just struck a chord because it is something that social workers probably do have to face day in, day out. And maybe that just tipped them over the edge. Yeah, I don't doubt there's a there's a pressure point in every professional about something. Something's happened to them at some point in their lives that's made them like this. Um, and everyone has sensitive areas. And I, and I can imagine that, yeah, it was a bad day. He read this email, he thought, hang on, I'm not having this. And then proceeded to make a series of quite bad decisions based out of, I imagine, a suffeat of emotion, which as we always tell our clients again, is something you should never do. Don't make decisions when you're angry. Don't make decisions when you're in the throes of an emotion because it's not helpful. So yeah, it's quite. I think it's quite an ironic sort of parallel to the actual reality on the ground of care proceedings and what we tell parents to do and what we tell parents to do as professionals to reflect and learn and grow and demonstrate insight. We are only as good as that advice when it comes to ourselves. And I think it's worth remembering that, that, you know, in their position, would we have done things any differently? Maybe not. So I am doing surrogacy this week because I am aware that we've had some requests for surrogacy cases. And also I do find surrogacy super interesting. And this is quite a juicy one. So it's called... Z a child surrogacy 2022 it's in front of mrs justice tice in the high court it came out on the 10th of march of this year and it concerns a child called zed zed was born in 2017 to um, his genetic parents via surrogate 
the parents were married in 2008 and separated and divorced in 2020. Mother is Moldovan, father is Italian with British citizenship, and as a result, the mother has British citizenship as well. Interesting twist to this case is that the parents have always accepted that they have never ever had a sexual relationship. So the father is 20 years older than the mother and is openly gay. There are two older children, A and B, who had been born following IVF treatments undertaken by the parents. And the mother had carried both the children and both the applicants the genetic parents of those children. They then got to a stage where the father was seeking to have a third child and he wanted the child to be the full sibling of A and B that he already had with the mother. And a surrogacy arrangement was organised in Georgia, whereby a Georgian surrogate became pregnant with Zed and um, subsequently Zed was born. In 2020, the children were made subject to care proceedings. So A, B and Z were all made subject to care proceedings where the court found that the father, where well, they made a number of findings of the father's abusive and controlling behaviour towards the mother throughout the relationship and the fact that this had been witnessed by the children, which ultimately ended in a order that the children live with their mother, spend supervised time with their father and that the family was subject to a supervision order in favour of the local authority. In the course of the care proceedings, it was revealed that Zed had been born by a surrogacy and no application for a parental order had been made. That's an order that secures the legal rights of the child with the genetic parents rather than the surrogate mother, because in English law, the gestational mother is the considered the legal mother of the child. So whoever carries the child, be it different genetics, be it different completely different DNA, the surrogate mother is the mother under English law. And the reason we do that is complicated, but it's to dovetail into the idea that we decriminalise but don't support surrogacy arrangements. And this means that people have to, whoever have surrogacy arrangements, have to make sure they go to court to get them signed off. It's a measure of inspection, basically, of people who are using surrogate mothers. And it's one of the reasons that I think non-traditional families are treated differently under the UK than perhaps they should be. But it's a discussion for another day. The point is, the person who has the baby, the, the woman who carries the baby and has the baby, or the man, is the legal mother until a parental order is made severing those rights and then the genetic mother or whoever else is applied becomes the parent. So it became fairly clear that after about three years after this child was born that no parental order application had been made and in fact the surrogacy arrangement had sort of slipped under the carpet no one knew what had happened. In his original evidence to the judge in the care proceedings the father had said that the mother had carried Zed and it was a just he, she was the gestational mother it then became clear that in fact that wasn't the case and so the court is faced with a classic application to apply for a parental order for Zed who is now three living with his siblings and his mother to all intents and purposes is the child of the family but in terms of English law is the child of a gestational mother in Georgia so the parental order application is made in December 2020 um, initial directions are provided for a guardian is joined, Z is joined as a party, and there are various different directions made on the specific surrogacy application. The judge says the background and circumstances of the surrogacy agreement remain somewhat uncertain, and the judge does in fact state that both parents gave rather unclear evidence, which may well have been to disguise the fact that this was a commercial surrogacy arrangement, which the judge does speculate about, which is illegal under English law. Both applicants state in their written evidence that the father took the lead in the arrangements for Zed's birth. The mother's role was confined to donating her eggs for the process. According to the father, he wanted another child and the mother was less willing. And in his written evidence, he says that she donated her eggs at a cost of £10,000. The father made inquiries and necessary arrangements via a surrogacy agency in Georgia. The judge says, as I say, both parents have, in my judgment, failed to give the court information in a helpful, consistent or reliable way. 
whilst I acknowledge the difficult dynamics in the applicant's relationship and the findings made by the judge in the care proceedings about the father's controlling and coercive behaviour towards the mother, in my judgment, their collective failure to provide the court with a consistent and reliable account is inimical to Zed's welfare and identity, depriving him of being able to grow up with a reliable account of his own particular background. So it's never entirely clear from the parents exactly how this third child came to be discussed, came about, was arranged, how much the mother knew, how much the father knew, and so on. But this is in the context of this rather strange dynamic where they're married and he is subjecting her to quite significant domestic abuse and controlling behaviour. But they do not and have never had their own sexual intimate relationship. And in fact, the way that they've had these children has always been non-traditional roots. There was then a delay because it took a long time to locate the surrogate mother who's referred to as Y in the judgment. They, in the end, the court had to make orders requesting assistance from the Embassy of Georgia in London to assist in locating her. And then there was various delays as well while the surrogate mother Y confirmed her consent by a notarized document that she absolutely did consent to the child being the child of these two parents and nothing to do with her. She confirms that she does not seek to look, to look after, care for, or have legal control over the child. And she absolutely consents to the child being the child of the mother and father in this case. She's given the link to join the hearing on a number of occasions. She's joined as a party. In the end, she makes it very clear and in a way that seems freely given, informed and consensual that she doesn't wish to be a part of the proceedings anymore. And she's very happy for the baby to be legally recognised as being the baby of the mother and the father. The judge goes on to look at what you need in order to secure a parental order in these circumstances. So obviously it's governed by Section 54 of the HFEA 2008, And the facts of this case make it somewhat difficult, although for anyone interested in surrogacy cases, and this might be the reason why we don't do that many of them on the podcast, a lot of the reported surrogacy cases are basically about how you get the criteria in Section 54 to fit the facts of the case to allow the court to grant a parental order. It's not very common. Judges don't want to grant parental orders because it completely changes the dynamics of the family. It means that there's someone often not available to care for the child who two people are willing and able to care for and who they are genetically attached to. So whilst analysis of Section 54 is interesting and helpful, after a certain number of cases, and and I read a lot of these cases, it does get fairly creative in terms of the lengths the court will go to to try and grant parental orders to children who are born through surrogacy arrangements in in England or abroad. So the first condition under Section 54 is the biological connection with at least one of the applicants and the child. We've obviously got that here, it's fairly straightforward. The second one is whether the applicants at the time of the application, at the time when the court is considering making an order, are married, civil partners, or in an enduring family relationship. Ding, ding, ding. We've been here before. If you recall, I did a case study of an adoption by one parent in the middle of last year in in season one about the criteria that mean that people who are separated but still have children together who seek to adopt another child that's been born through non-traditional methods have to show that they're in an enduring family relationship. Same vibe, same test. Even if you're not married or in a civil partnership, you have to prove that you're in an enduring family relationship for the purposes of the child. Now, in this case, the parents were married, but they divorced in 2020. And so the relevant part of Section 54 requires the court to be satisfied that the applicants must be two persons who are living as partners in an enduring family relationship. Whilst they separated in early 2020 and divorced in October 2020, they submit they meet this requirement because they lived together with the baby on his arrival in London in early 2018. And they were living as a family until that point and continue to be committed to caring for the child. Court finds enduring family relationship test is met. Section 54.3 requires the application to be issued within six months of the child's birth. 
Now, at the time of the child's birth in this case, bear in mind, we're almost three years down the line, the parents state that they were not aware of the need to apply for a parental order. They simply weren't advised that that's what they needed to do, which unfortunately is quite common. It was not until the receipt of the advice from a specialist lawyer within the care proceedings did they realise that they needed to apply for a parental order. Once they were aware, the application was made the following month. And Mrs Justice Tice quotes uh, Mumby, as was in Rex, where he says that there is a power to make a parental order notwithstanding the expiry of the six-month time limit because the court need to consider whether the application was made relatively promptly once it was known such an application was required to be made. So if parents know that they need to make the application and still wait longer than six months, you might be in some hot water. But what Rex has always said is that if it's six months to the point that the parents understand that they need to apply for one, because as I say, it's very common that parents aren't told that they need to regularise a surrogacy agreement in this way because they assume that the genetic mother of the child is the mother. That's not the case. It's the gestational mother. Section 54.4 requires the child's home to be with the applicants at the time the application was issued and at the time the court is considering making a parental order. Mr Justice says, I consider this is met. De facto family life has been established between the applicants and Zed and Zed had lived with the applicants soon after his birth until early 2020 and continues to live with his mother and his siblings. Section 54.5 is that both applicants must be of the age of 18, no problem. Section 54.6 requires the court to be satisfied that the gestational mother consents to the court making a parental order and that that consent is freely, unconditionally and consensually given with a full understanding of the consequences. So in this case, why the gestational mother was living in Georgia, and that's why there was so much delay, because her consent had to be obtained in a formal way that would be recognised both in Georgia and in the UK because of the severity of the consequences of granting a parental order. She had to have her um, consent notarised, she had to be advised by an expert in Georgian and English law. We had to be sure, well the court had to be sure that she consented to this arrangement without any possible misgivings or without any concerns. Eventually the court received a notarial certificate that was then translated from Georgian to English that confirmed that this mother certainly did consent to the making of the parental order and that she knew that the child should be placed with the mother and the father. She also did attend a couple of hearings at the beginning of the procedure and the, the judge was satisfied that she'd understood what was being asked of her. The final criteria under section 54.8 is that the court needs to consider any payments made other than for expenses reasonably incurred. Now, Mrs Justice says throughout, it's been very difficult to get a clear picture of precisely what payments were made. And I think this is a bit of intentional fluffing by the parents, perhaps because not all of the payments that were made were strictly for reasonable expenses, which is only what's permitted under English law. But the judge goes through all of those payments, looks at how much money the surrogate was given. And the court says, in considering whether any element of the payments other than for expenses reasonably incurred should be authorised, the court needs to consider whether the payments were disproportionate to expenses reasonably incurred whether the applicants acted in good faith or sought to get around the authorities. Whilst the fine detail of the payments made remained unclear to the surrogate mother why, when contacted, she was clear she acted as a surrogate mother, was willing to cooperate with providing her consent, and although she could not recall the amount she accepted, she was paid for the arrangement. The emails provided indicate that there were monthly payments for expenses and then a larger payment after the birth. Whilst the court remains concerned about the applicant's approach to the surrogacy and the lack of detailed information, there is no suggestion that the applicants did not act in good faith or that they sought to get around the authorities. The court can only deal with the information it's been provided with. It appears from that that this was an arrangement which involved payments other than for expenses reasonably incurred. Such an arrangement is permitted in the jurisdiction where it was entered into, and it's not suggested the payments were disproportionate. Why, the surrogate mother, has cooperated voluntarily with the process whereby she gave her consent to the making of a parental order in these proceedings and has remained available to contact. Although recognising the information is not as clear as it could have been, 
I'm satisfied the court should authorise any element of the payments made that do relate to expenses recently incurred. So essentially, we're not quite sure what went on. We're fairly clear that she got paid some money to do this, but it's allowed in Georgia and we're not about to, you know, prejudice the welfare of the child for the rest of their lives and not grant the order simply because their parents paid a bit too much money for the baby is essentially the thrust of the judgment. So, of course, the court made the parental order, of course, said is now the legal child of his mother and father, who he's always lived with and is the legal sibling of his two older siblings who are already the legal children of his mother and his father. But it's an interesting fact pattern. And I think it's a really good example of the factors under Section 54 that govern these applications and the way in which the court does tie itself in knots to try and make sure that the right outcome happens. I think there's an interesting jurisprudential point about the interplay between, you know, looking at the spending and looking at parents being over 18 and looking at the six month time limit when it comes to the interplay of that with the paramountcy principle and welfare, because none of those considerations under 54 are welfare considerations. They are logistical and procedural considerations that look at whether the surrogate mother consents, whether the people are over the age of 18, whether there's been a six month time limit and so on, none of which really relate to what we would consider to be substantive welfare. So it's quite an interesting case to look at from the High Court because it doesn't mention welfare at all. It just goes through the factors and says, we're going to grant this this section 54 application there is four paragraphs at the end of the judgment entitled welfare needs where mrs justice ty sets out that if the section 54 criteria are met the court needs to consider whether making a parental order will meet Z's welfare needs and of course in this case they find that it does the guardian also agrees after the analysis of his needs that this is entirely what this child should have but it's an interesting two-stage test you've got to meet the tick box requirements first and then you look at welfare and i will do my best to try and find a case next week or the week after that looks at when those two things may conflict and what the court does about them because that's when it starts to get slightly more interesting in terms of welfare arguments versus clear and flagrant breaches of section 54 criteria and how the court deals with that but otherwise a very interesting case on the facts and uh, obviously very happy for Zed and his new family or well existing family legally recognized family. Yeah I think it's yet another example that feeds into this conversation about reform of section 54 of the HFEA and whether it's put in place a framework that is you say disadvantages non-traditional families and just ends up with judges effectively trying to force things into the legislation to to satisfy an outcome that they think is in the best interest of the child and that's certainly not how it should be done. We've been going on and on and on about reform of section 54 for such a long time. There have been all sorts of reports, Surrogacy UK's working group report has been published and there doesn't really seem to be the political will to drive forward the kind of reform that we need to see to prevent these onerous requirements being placed on non-traditional families to achieve outcomes that are quite plainly in the welfare interests of the children. It also, it always surprises me when I tell, well, when people find out, lawyers and non-lawyers, that gestational mothers are considered legal mothers in England. And it's quite an interesting kink of the law because On any reading of of logical analysis, I don't think a lot of people would agree that it makes sense that the person who carries the baby, even if the baby is in no way biologically related to them, it's two completely different sets of DNA inside a third party carrier, that that makes them in some way the mother of the child. And I think the reason that the court did it, perhaps in 2008, 2007, when the HFEA was born in its current form, was so they could maintain this level of, of checkbox was to make sure that we know everyone who's trying to do this. We know everyone who's entering into surrogacy arrangements and we know how they're doing it. And that is not the same scrutiny that people who enter into natural born families 
receive. And it's just a clear, in my view, clear discrimination um, of both gay people, of people who have non-conforming gender roles, of people who don't wish to have sexual relationships with their partners. Any of those people could be prejudiced by this by this law. And it, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So yes, something to, to think about when looking at surrogacy. It's a really interesting area. Certainly happy to talk about it more, but it's certainly an area that makes me quite angry because as you're reading through all these laws, you're thinking, why on earth has Parliament done this? This doesn't seem to make sense because anyone who doesn't want to use this way of creating family doesn't get any kind of scrutiny. People create children by natural methods all the time. Yeah, it seems slightly at odds with how progressive and forward thinking the family court is and, and, and continues to be. And you never see that more clearly than judges trying to bend over backwards to make these orders happen because clearly they don't agree um, that these things should even be happening. So it's it's quite interesting. What have you got for recommendations this week? I have a podcast recommendation that I listened to on a very, very long, very boring journey to court. And it is Professor Joe Delahunty QC's interview with the Advocacy Podcast. Have you listened to the Advocacy Podcast at all? I have, yes. Baby Bideo, big fan. Yes, so many people recommended it to me. And this particular episode is on winning the unwinnable. But I've heard such great things about this podcast. And this particular episode with Joe Delhunty QC, friend of the pod, great supporter of young barristers, young female barristers, of us as individuals. And she speaks to um, the podcast about all sorts of practical tips and insider advice on how she tackles her briefs. As barristers will know, after pupillage, we are pretty much dropped in it we had the supervision for 12 months 18 months whatever it might be and then once we enter tenancy we're sort of left to flap around to figure out what it is to to barrister and we have to kind of learn by osmosis and pick things up as they go and there's the old advocacy course thrown in here or there but by and large it's a bit of a baptism of fire and you have to do things wrong before you can learn how to do things right so Joe on the podcast gives lots of practical tips such as how to approach a case. She is a self-described prep queen. So she preps the hell out of her cases. She starts with the documents other people don't generally start with. So I'm certainly guilty when I first get a bundle of going to the documents that I think are going to get me um, to the key issues the fastest. So guardians report, final statements, final social work evidence template, that kind of thing. And she says, actually, I start with the documents other people don't generally start with so that I can approach the evidence with fresh eyes and I'm not swayed by the professional recommendations. She talks about things like the order in which witnesses should give evidence from a tactical point of view, how she uses tables and schedules to map out evidence, for instance, in non-accidental injury cases, how she cross-examines, including not setting out questions in full, but broad brush headings with prompts to remind herself of the issue so that it's fluid and can respond to what the witness says. So lots and lots of helpful information in there from someone at the absolute top of their game. Get some insider tips on how to advocate for your client like a silk and check out that episode. What about you, Maddie? Mine is actually an American recommendation. It's also a podcast It's called Modern Family Matters. And I listened to an episode of it for an unrelated purpose last week because I was trying to find out what American lawyers thought of something. And it's actually super, super interesting. It's about things like divorce, custody, adoption, estate planning, modern familial solutions in American law and the difference between them in different states. And it's super interesting if you're at all interested in why family law exists and comparative family law, because it's actually based in Oregon, which is a fairly progressive state, but uh, it looks at different comparative areas of the US. And it's a little bit 
nerdy I mean I like it it's quite black letter law heavy but it's super interesting as a comparative tool and if you're you know interested in expanding your practice or looking at practicing in America you know pupillage applicants or students I think it would be a really good thing to dip your toe into and have a listen to and I actually found it really helpful for the thing I'm researching as well um, so I think it's a good research tool so I'd absolutely recommend that um, and secondly season three of the split is coming back I don't know if you saw that I actually didn't see season two I've only seen season one so I'm going to try and catch up before that comes back in a couple of months I think yeah I mean the split is totally inaccurate from a family law point of view there was this ridiculous mock trial that they did in season two where the main character gives this impassioned speech and all I was thinking the entire time is this isn't real this isn't real this isn't real but it's so juicy that I'm willing to overlook all the obvious errors in its perceptions and portrayals of the family justice system because it is a great drama okay tweet of the week I have two tweets of the week which is fantastic because I often struggle to find one good tweet of the week, but thankfully legal Twitter has stepped it up just as we asked. Uh, The first tweet of the week is from Oliver Conway at Oliver Conway. I had a full on heart attack when I read this. I saw it when I was at court and it reads, as a family lawyer, you get to hear a lot of brilliant children's names, often in the most difficult and complex situations. Here is a thread of children's names from some of my current clients. And then if you click on the thread, it is, of course, an April Fool's joke. But it's alarming that I thought it wasn't, because unfortunately, there have been a couple of occasions in recent times where I've seen family lawyers tweet ill-considered tweets, which if I were their client, I certainly wouldn't be happy with. Unfortunately, on at least one occasion, I've had to reach out to someone on Twitter to suggest that they take a tweet down because I didn't think that it was appropriate at all and revealed far too much about their client and their circumstances. But very good joke. Oliver did get me. I was almost ready to report into the SRA. So he's very lucky that I carried on reading that thread and didn't. And my other tweet of the week is by Annika Sinclair Jens at Annika Sinclair. And she writes, I've been thinking a lot about advocacy and imposter syndrome recently. I have a tendency to get intimidated by an opponent, especially if they are significantly senior than me. Not always, but has happened more often than I like and only when I appeared in the Crown Court. Even if I do have the right information or have got the law right, my confidence wavers thinking I've got something wrong. I had a recent sentencing hearing where wrong guidelines had been put forward previously, and then I got a lot of pushback from the judge and defence counsel for my new categorisation. My mind instantly thought, damn, I've got it wrong. Turned out I hadn't. Anyway, a very nebulous question, but do barristers suffer from this? Does confidence, and more importantly, conviction in your submissions come from experience, knowing how things play out? or do you have to fake it? How does one fake it? I've never been good at standing up and saying something with confidence if I'm not sure it's right. Does that mean you cannot be a good advocate if you can't project confidence on everything you say? Sort of questioning my world right now. First of all, Annika, I feel your pain and there have been multiple occasions. I think it's probably one of the first things I do to be honest when I get a brief is Google who my opponent is. And if it's someone around my level of call, then I generally feel quite relaxed and I think that we'll be on a level playing field. And if it's someone who's got 20, 30 years of experience, I immediately think, oh God, they're going to have so much more experience than me. They're going to know what they're doing. They're going to try and psych me out because unfortunately that does happen where more senior counsel try and psych out more junior practitioners and to try and persuade them that there's absolutely no way that they can run their argument that it's totally ridiculous and you do start to question everything that you think about the case even though your initial instinct was probably right but having that self-doubt in my view 
it does not mean at all that you can't be a good advocate. It means that you have the humility to think that you're not absolutely right about everything and that you have the ability to self-reflect and to think, is there something that I could be doing better? Is there something else that I should have looked at? But ultimately, if you are confident in your own arguments, then back yourself. There's always going to be someone more experienced, more confident, more assertive than you. That doesn't necessarily make them a better advocate. It just is what it is. But I I definitely feel your pain and I I definitely can empathise with that as well. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's the truth universally acknowledged that people who are more senior than you are often much more intimidating. And also that's the way we judge people at the bar. You know, that's how we categorise barristers is by level of course. So we, we must think there's something in it. But I think there's a lot to be said, as you say, for having confidence in your ability. And if you are, I think it's a really good motivator if you are feeling nervous or worried about a case and you realise you're against an opponent who is going to put you through your paces, then I think it makes you better, makes you work harder. And you're only ever, you know, bouncing off someone who also knows that they're good. So I think it's, it's a helpful motivational tool. I also think anecdotally that more junior practitioners, you know, when you're straight out of pupillage in your first couple of years of practice, you are so desperate to get things right that you put your absolute all into your cases. And more senior counsel, because they've been doing this job day in, day out for years and years and years, they might tend to get complacent. They might not put in the same amount of work that you're putting in. So I think that seniority doesn't necessarily mean competence it often does it often definitely means experience more experience than you but I think that junior barristers from my experience whenever I see them against more senior counsel are the ones who have turned over every stone in the case because they are so worried about getting something wrong and that's actually something I really don't want to lose as I get more senior I don't want to become more complacent I I always want to have that um, have I read absolutely every document and have I done everything I can to to represent my client's interests attitude that junior barristers have Yeah, and I think ultimately that's why competence is not judged only on experience. It's got to be judged on a number of other factors as well. So yeah, don't lose that motivation, pupils. My tweet of the week is from Diana at Diana Wilson 165 and it came up on my timeline and it really made me laugh. It is a truth universally acknowledged that when you prepare every possible angle and counter argument and have everything you might want to say written down, the Court of Appeal will grant your appeal without wishing to hear from you. And it made me laugh so much and made me think about pupillage application season as well because... I get asked so much as a barrister by people who aren't barristers, what does it feel like to win a case? Are you really persuasive? You must love to win. And my response is always nine times out of 10, I could not turn up and the same result would have happened because on the papers, you just know what the answer is. There's never any wiggle room. There's never any nuance. You know what's going to happen. For the one out of 10 cases that you do get to make a difference, obviously it's addictive. That's why we're all here chasing the high all the time. But there are so many cases where I have prepped and prepped and prepped and thought, and often when I was slightly more junior, but I don't know the answer to this. I don't know what's going to happen. It seems like it might be this, but I'm not sure. And I better make sure that I've got all my authorities ready and everything's ready to go. And then you get into the, to the hearing and the judge just says, I'm, I'm entirely with you. You know, you don't need to address me any further. It's it, we're done, which feels great, obviously, but also feels a bit like, you know, could have sent my dog along and it would have done a fine job. So it, it cuts both ways. It did make me laugh. And I think it's probably happened to everyone that you over-prepare an argument so much and are so ready for, to be, you know, asked a million questions about it. And eventually in the end, the court just says, actually, don't worry about it. We've already made up our minds. Nothing you say will possibly add anything. <laughs> um, so yeah, that made me laugh this week. It's also a truth universally acknowledged that when you think you have a slam dunk case, that is precisely the case where the court decides, actually, I disagree with all of the professional evidence. I disagree with everything in the bundle and I need you to persuade me about why it is that you're asking me to do this. So, yeah, expect the unexpected. That is the bar. Always. Well, that's episode eight. We will see you next week or in a couple of weeks or maybe four weeks. Who knows? For episode nine. Thank you so much.